patch of sand at the far end of the timber brig, not out of any dutiful, dutiful respect for myself, but purely to ascertain which path I'll take. This is a matter of supreme unimportance to me, since both tracks are paths to freedom and both reach enchantment in their own good time. I can turn left along the tide line, or go straight before me into the grey-green grass plain of the salt marsh. Either way, there is nothing and everything ahead of us. The vast vacant levels of the great bay, where the tides ebb and flow over the mud flats, and the waders bank and swerve and flash in flocks, disciplined to a thousandth of a second, yet wildly free as the wind. The empty saltings where a million pools and dubs and runnels reflect eternity, and the curlews trill their endless refrain. The far distant bar where, a calm or storm, the rollers break in unceasing succession, gleaming white against the blue or stark chalk against slate, three miles long of muted thunder. And far, far away, half right, beyond the salt marsh, beyond distance, unreal and scarcely to be reached, like escarpments of the moon, the dune country, the sand hill ranges, golden, beckoning, mirage mountains that seem to hold the sun even on the greyest day, that sing in the wind, where the terns and the eiders and the martins nest and the fox lopes about his affairs. And over all this and more, dominating it, and all the sea beyond, enfolding, reigning supreme, and seeming to level even the proud sand hills into crouching obeisance, the great skies, the soaring cloudscapes, the radiance, the light of the infinite, infinite translucent light of the north. What matters it which path I take, except to test? In winter and spring, I tend more often, I suppose, to take the path to the right, inland, as likely to be more dry. There is a gradual slant down to the sea, even in the seemingly level salt marsh, and since water drains downwards, however sluggishly, the lower track is frequently waterlogged, with the water table so close to the surface and the tide itself damming up the drainage. Not that I usually make the decision consciously, for what are damp feet when one's head is in the clouds? Though possibly the same shrinking feet are apt to look after themselves and keep themselves dryish more often than I am aware. For certainly Tess, who I think prefers the lower path for obscure reasons not unconnected with the intensely satisfying odoriferous things that not uncommonly are washed up along the tide line, Tess has to swallow her disappointment with notable frequency and console herself with the frustrating business of trying to catch skylarks on the wing. <clears throat> it is extraordinary how quickly the larks take over the moment one's foot leaves the last plank of the footbridge. I suppose that there must be larks on the unenchanted side of the bridge also. My house is only 300 yards away, back there in a corner of woodland between two fields, and no doubt larks on occasion soar above my garden. But it is a fact that never do I hear them shouting their praise until I cross the bridge. And then, immediately, unfailingly, 
They are all around me, shouting their heads off, rocketing up on all sides, jerkily scaling the heavens like celestial spiders on invisible webs, trilling with unquenchable exuberance, direly calculated to get between any earth-bound author and his subject. Strange that the din never seems to penetrate beyond the bridge. Can't all be the fault of the traffic on the North Berwick Road. Perhaps it is just that my ears subconsciously and automatically tune in to a different wavelength. I am much enamoured of those larks. So is Tess, but she has never yet managed to catch one, soar into the air as she will, with agonised twistings of her lissom yellow body, to try to gain the extra inch or two. I suppose that there must be literally thousands of larks, nests,